2: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
0: You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hash. You are watching us on Coindesk TV and listening on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sanasi. We're joined today by Sendali Handagama, Wendy O, Will Foxley, George Kaludis, and Adam B. Levine. Will, I think you have our first story.
2: Let's talk about Celsius. They're going to bankruptcy court, and we got a nice snapshot of their current asset holdings and liabilities last week, including a few interesting details. One bit, they included $600 million, I believe, attributed to their token CEL, CEL. But in reality, it's only worth around $100, $120 million just because the asset itself or the token has depreciated in price so much since Celsius blew up. Also included some interesting notes, like some mining operations that it runs, actually has a decently large mining operation up there in terms of like the size against other private companies. As CoinDesk reported last week, the prices of ASIC miners, the Bitcoin miners themselves is also quickly depreciating. So that means that Celsius is probably overstating how much these assets are actually worth. And then you get into the liabilities, right? And we reported last week that there was a very large hole in their balance sheet from one particular company, Equities First. I think it was near $500 million in outstanding debt from that company. So just looking at the total picture, it's pretty rough. It is not a good way of looking at this, saying like things are going to be okay. Of course, the most important thing now is for retail and anyone who is involved with Celsius, how are they going to get money back? And does Celsius have the ability to go through chapter 11 successfully, come out on the other side and pay out a lot of the retail participants in this? Right now, doesn't look so good. George, gonna throw it up to you for your take though
4: yeah i have a lot of thoughts going through my head right now but the first thing i'd say is if you're gonna have a crypto token don't call it sell don't call it sell it's just <laughs> it just sounds anything like anything like about that that's good um i don't know we gotta start putting that through like marketing things i don't know I feel like crypto companies always fail but i'm in that saying capacity. we
3: need marketers
4: yeah bitcoin has a marketing problem <laughs> so do all the other ones when it comes to this balance sheet hole can someone explain to me what a balance sheet hole is, right? Like I spent five years in investment banking, and the only time the balance sheet didn't balance was when some silly first year analyst, Will's favorite, wasn't doing something correct when they were looking at the financials. What is a balance sheet hole? Is that bad debt? If that's bad debt, that's still a liability. It's just bad debt. So there's that. Also, this mining thing, Will, you know as well as we do. I can probably go buy like 10 A6 right now with, you know, just a quick loan from like my brother. I don't know. I don't really have much to say other than I think Celsius is kind of in for a pickle. My least favorite thing of what they're doing now is that they're doing you know the Chapter 11 bankruptcy rather than filing bankruptcy as a broker-dealer, which means that they do in fact believe that the assets they hold are their assets rather than their customers. So retail comes out on the bottom again. I didn't want to latch on to what I had to say. Sorry. I didn't really go anywhere with that. Just... It was great voice. points. I like the oh, solid token part. Yeah. Wendy, go ahead. I actually I learned a lot
0: it. from what you said, though. Oh, did you? I did. Because, <laughs> no, I did because like, George, the balance me. sheet hole, like what is a balance sheet hole? Like when I balance my family's budget for the month, like we don't have any holes in the budget because we have a certain amount of money that we have to spend. I don't know. I learned from it. though, because I've never heard that term. I learned about it in crypto.
3: Yeah, the balance sheet should balance. You know, it's called. Mm. Balance sheet. Anyway, money is going
4: out. It still went out. (laughs) It's still gone. We just—it's gone, right? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it
3: would seem that way. Maybe we'll get some more clarity on this poll as the story progresses. I think over the next cycle, though, we're going to see a lot of precedent-setting law take place in the courts, and we've spoken a little bit about this when it comes to intellectual property, what's going on in the metaverse with Web three and NFTs. I think that this is going to Contribute to some precedent setting law when it comes to bankruptcy court and crypto companies. That's going to be, I think, really interesting to watch play out. There was a quote in a Reuters article this morning from Stephen Ganon, who is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine. He said he thinks it's going to take about six months minimum for them to develop a plan and get out, which sounds like a really long time for these customers who are waiting to find out what's going to happen to their funds. I can only imagine the anxiety that people who had funds or who have funds on Celsius are feeling right now. And I wanna say though, that we should look at the story if you're new to the crypto space and use it as an opportunity to educate yourself learn about self-custody, learn about, you know, when things maybe sound like they're too good to be true. And you don't always have to steer away from them, but you should understand the risks before you get into them. So I think that we can all learn from what's happening here. And if you're new to crypto, it's not all doom and gloom. But Will, I saw your hand go up.
2: Okay, I'm going to take this a techie nerdy corner for a second, because that's my obligation as being part of the show. Really interesting correlate to this whole story is the DeFi debt that Celsius had, right? So not only do they have a lot of debt, outstanding obligations to a bunch of companies in CFI centralized finance or traditional finance. But they also had a lot of debt to DeFi applications. And these are smart contracts on a protocol. And the most interesting thing about this is that Celsius had to pay off that DeFi debt before it could pay off anything else. Before it started going down the debt stack and paying off CFI TradFi partners, they had to pay off the DeFi debt. Now, why does that matter? Well, when you're looking at your liabilities, and you're starting to make those payments, right? You have to choose which one needs the dollars first. Who is going to get your first stack of dollars to be able to pay off that debt? And you call that senior debt. And in most cases, you're going to pay it off to people who you want to work with in the future, or who have the tightest contracts on you, who can basically squeeze you the hardest. In this case, the DeFi protocols have the most leverage because if you don't pay it down, then you get liquidated. You have to pay off that debt, otherwise it's gone. There's no human on the other side. It's just a computer. It's going to take your money away and you can't get it back. So that's why we saw Celsius go through its MakerDAO loans and pay those off as quickly as it could to get the collateral back. And then it went through Aave and it paid off debt to get its collateral back. And it kept doing that for all the DeFi loans that it had outstanding. And then it was able to take that collateral and start paying off its other debts. So this is one of the more interesting things that we're looking at, like debt structures, which again, I understand it's a pretty nerdy topic. But it is important going forward, if this is going to be like a thing for crypto and for traditional finance, you're going to see DeFi become this cornerstone product because of how people have to interact with the debt structures.
5: Kind of a huge flood of new information via a 1000 plus page liquidation filing in Singapore in the matter of three Arrows capital. It looks like the document was actually drafted and dated about the 7th of this month, but it just became public yesterday-ish, maybe a little bit over the weekend. And for those who aren't up to speed, Three Arrows Capital is the apparently way bigger than we thought and way more indebted than we thought hedge fund that had been a sort of poster boy for crypto success over 2020 and 2022, but has turned out to be a little bit more fragile than we thought. This obviously is a huge document that we're still working through as reporters, but there are three new pieces of information that I kind of want to highlight, and then maybe we can talk through them one by one. But we do know now that Genesis, which is a Coindesk sibling company, is apparently owed $1.2 billion by Three Arrows, which is considerably more than we thought they have already liquidated the collateral on those positions. I'm not entirely clear on whether that 1.2 is minus or inclusive of the collateral that got liquidated already. Two other significant things that we can kind of talk through. One is that this thing called TPS trading, typing Shan, there is more and more evidence that this supposedly third-party trading entity was actually quite affiliated with Three Arrows, which speaks to kind of some of the opacity of relationships And then finally, one of the sort of other just little details that came out in this big document, there's something called the Moonbeam Foundation, which is owed $27 million from Three Arrows in connection to some trading that Three Arrows was supposed to do to create liquidity for this token, arguably acting as a market maker, but not really apparently. So maybe we can get into that and what a market maker is actually supposed to do. But the gist here and the takeaway is not only was three arrows in more debt than we thought, but there were perhaps some relationships with entities that we thought were separate that were taking on their own debt that were not perhaps as separate as we thought. So a lot going on. Will, you wanna jump on and flesh out my initial takeaways here?
2: Yeah, I'll do the best I can. Like As you said, this is very complex and every day we're finding out the new counterparty involved with the story itself. We'd start with 3AC and Genesis, which I know we've covered on here, the hash and then other Coindesk shows quite a few times, but just continues to get more interesting. This $1.2 billion hole is pretty large, just like Celsius, right? They have a $1.2 billion hole in their balance sheet also. That number keeps coming up. Uh, It's not a great number to be looking at either. The symmetry there is astounding. Just looking at the 3AC side and Genesis side here. Genesis sees some collateral, looks like we don't know how much. A lot of that collateral is actually DCG issued trust. So this is like a a product they offer, Bitcoin Grayscale Trust. And so that product itself is actually not super valuable right now. If you look at the market of it, there's a large discount on it that has persisted for close to a year now. And it's actually one of the reasons that 3AC blew up. They made a very long leverage play on this product that DCG issues and it did not go super well more or less because the SEC has not allowed this product to pivot into the open market and become a Bitcoin ETF. That's the entire purpose of the product. But it hasn't happened. That trade spoiled. And it was also used for collateral. And so 3AC has pledged as collateral. People had to take it. Genesis still has a large hole in their balance sheet, but that was assumed by DCG. DCG is very large. It's one of the largest firms in crypto, if not the largest in terms of just market size. And so they're taking that on The question now going forward is like, what is DCG's position within all this? Because they are worth, I think around $4 billion is one number I saw float around. And this is a very Mm -hmm. substantial size loss for them. Now pivoting over to this TPS or TPC connection, it's pretty confusing what's going on here, but it does seem like there are a few key things that indicate this firm was basically owned by 3AC in one right or another. There's some filing showing that a large percentage of the equity in the firm was owned by Suzu and Kyle mm-hmm. Davies' wife. They both had a joint interest in the company. And then also some of the collateral that was need to be paid to another firm was then paid by 3AC when a marching call was called on. So 3AC mm-hmm. is paying the bills and a lot of the equity holders are 3AC founding members. as Well, then you could probably say it's another 3AC entity. Jen, I'll throw it over to you for your take.
3: Yeah, quick disclosure. So the article mentions Marana Ventures. I work for a lab that is a core contributor to BitDAO and Marana is an investor in BitDAO. So as we see this bankruptcy filing, it's so interesting because we talk about the industry as this very transparent and verifiable industry. That's the ethos that this is built on. And we're seeing the opaqueness kind of unravel Parts of the industry that were so strong during the bull cycle. So I think it's really kind of just interesting to see how this is happening. One specific part that we haven't spoken about on this show yet that I wanted to bring up was that $50 million yacht story that came out yesterday. So apparently the founders of 3AC put a $50 million deposit on a yacht that is meant to be delivered in Italy within the next two months. So we'll see what happens there. And there's another tidbit that's come out in the filing that hasn't been verified yet. I believe creditors have asked for it to be verified, but they're saying that Zuzu and his wife have put money down on two very exclusive mansions in Singapore and creditors want to know where the funds for that came from. So this is all kind of unraveling like a Netflix series, like so many crypto stories do. And so I just, I don't even think that We can predict what will happen next. David, I saw your hand go up.
5: I just want to elaborate slightly on the yacht thing. We had been aware of that for a little while, but yesterday, or maybe it was even earlier today, Suzu tweeted something. He's only tweeted twice since the Unwind at this point. He tweeted something to the effect of, I'm going to flee to the ocean where there is no law. I don't have the exact tweet in front of me, but he was joking about this yacht that you mentioned, basically, and saying jokingly that he's going to use it to evade the law, which I would just put out as like, if you're in trouble, don't suggest that you're a flight risk because then you're never going to get out of jail again. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just put that out there for any future felons who are considering their strategies.
2: <laughs> Wait, just uh, not to do a fact check. I think that's from two years ago, it was a 2019 tweet. And people are resurfacing Oh, can in somebody now.
5: resurface an old tweet. Okay, yeah. thank
2: you. Yeah, it's a beautiful, thank you, that's a beautiful. Yeah, for sure. It's he, it's, it's a beautiful well, moment though, because you're completely maybe he was right. Planning ahead. <laughs> yeah, David's it's, advice it's a funny,
3: still stands though.
2: <laughs> it so. does. It does. Advice <laughs> is salient. Wendy, to you
0: the only thing I want to say on this is I'm still kind of waiting for more and more information to come out. I believe the court document, is it 1000 pages or is that a different court document? Because yep. it seems to be, there's so many court documents to go through. So I kind of want to wait really for more information to come out. But at the same time, this is very, very sad. And it also goes to show that even though we operate in crypto and things are supposed mm-hmm. to be very transparent, people that do operate in crypto, these big entities, a lot of times they do things on the back end and they're done very privately. So you can't necessarily verify everything. And hopefully moving forward in the future, we can operate in a more decentralized and trans... Well, I don't even want to say decentralized because that's up for debate to a whole separate topic regarding ethics, but operate in a more transparent form where you can actually see more deals happen on chain. And one thing I do want to add is that if anybody is watching the show or listening and you are invested in any project that has Three Arrows Capital's name on it to where that project did receive capital from Three Arrows Capital... I would highly recommend that you research that, figure out what it is and have a bullish and bearish trading or investing plan because if more and more creditors come calling, those positions could potentially be liquidated or they might have to sell the tokens and it could cause some volatility in the market or absolutely destroy those projects you're invested in. Not financial advice, just my opinion. love
6: talking about this. we have got an excellent story from Coindesk's Helene Braun that shines a light on just how out of step the Jerome Powell-led U.S. Central Bank really is in their fight against inflation compared to past examples. The last time the U.S. saw official levels of inflation this high, the Federal Reserve acted with a lot more urgency than they are today. At the core of this issue is the Taylor Principle, which states that the real interest rate should be raised, quote, more than one for one when inflation increases. In other words, if you want to bring inflation down, you need to have a base cost to borrow money that exceeds that rate. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just borrow cheap money and invest it in something that inflation will push the price up in, which will then itself contribute to the price going even higher as others follow that example. Dan Moorhead of Pantera Capital recently posted a pretty revealing chart covering this dynamic from the 1970s through today that I think does a good job of illustrating this. Okay, so here we're looking at the white line is the real Fed funds rate, the gold line is the inflation rate, and the gray shaded area represents just how out of whack these two numbers are. You'll notice that this chart, which goes back to the 1970s, shows that these numbers have never been further apart. So this is actually a pretty big deal. Wendy, I'd like to kind of tag you in for first comments on this one. You know, we've talked about inflation a lot over the last couple of weeks, and it seems like this isn't a topic that's going away. What's your read on this?
0: I think all they're doing is trying to manipulate mainstream and make them think that everything's going to be okay, when in fact, it's not going to be okay. I don't know how things can be okay when we have such a discrepancy on the chart that we're seeing above. People are literally hurting. They can't afford things. Rents are increasing. We are seeing issues with the housing market. It's a very problematic thing to me. I don't know how they're going to fix this. If they're going to print more money, they're going to raise rates. I mean, the issue that I'm seeing is when we look at the rates like back from the 80s and the 70s, well, really the 80s when things were super high, especially to purchase homes, the wages were different. The living style was different. People were actually able to afford things. They were able to pay rent. They were able to maybe not necessarily afford mortgages because interest rate was so high, But today, people can't afford to do anything and you can see it in the stores. So I don't know exactly how they're going to fix this. All I know is very problematic. It's upsetting. And I just want to scream at the top of my lungs at the people in charge. But more importantly, to the people that are watching, we do have a say in what happens. You guys just need to get out there and need to reach out to your local government officials. You need to make noise there because they have direct lines to the people that are up above and let them know you're not happy. Because realistically, at the end of the day, I believe that Americans have gotten lazy and we need to do better if we want positive change. And we're in a pretty, pretty big mess that is not going to be fixed overnight. And raising rates are not going to fix it. Lowering taxes may not fix it. Just a big problem that we have. And I don't know if we can get out of it.
2: Cheery, super cheery perspective there. The interesting thing here for me is the 1980s versus today, Where the 1980s, they had the political will to make these big changes to the interest rate, right? Where they shot interest rates up, I believe they almost hit 20%, just the cost of borrowing money it was so much higher. And that helped tame inflation. And now it's like, do we have the political power to do that or the political will to do that? Doesn't seem like that's the case. And the Biden administration is definitely losing out on that side just because they haven't been able to tame inflation. They haven't been able to take steps to do that. And with midterms coming up, it seems like there's going to be a pretty big bloodbath with representatives getting kicked out of office. Jen, I'll throw it down to you.
3: Yeah, I was reading an article in the Canadian News recently that was comparing Canadian inflation to what was going on in the 70s and 80s and it pointed to a lot of eerie similarities, right? So some economists point to the war in Ukraine now for the spillover effects when it comes to like the price of oil and food. The article was talking about in the 70s, there was the Yom Kippur War that was followed by the Iranian Revolution and the Iran-Iraq War. Canadians at that time were putting their money into the housing market. The markets were a little bit different between Canada and the U.S., and that option is definitely not available for Canadians, at least now. Our housing market is out of control like it is in the U.S. Wendy, to your point, I think people are just tired. I think, you know, reaching out to your local representative, is it really going to move the needle? I think people are apathetic. I think people are feeling the same way we feel right now on the show. It really feels like everything we're saying is like, we don't know what we're going to do. Is there really a solution? Is anyone actually going to listen to me? And I don't know that calling your local representative is really going to change anything, but I still urge people to do it because, you know, in numbers, We can make a change. It just, I feel that. I feel that people are just feeling helpless.
0: I do have to add on to that. So I know that it can seem kind of mundane to reach out to your local representatives and most people probably feel like, hey, I won't have a voice, but I want to actually explain something that happened recently in California. So I'm sure most of you know who Brad Sherman is and he's the guy that's always yelling, Bitcoin is bad, crypto is bad, extra basic security, whatever it is. But the thing was, is we had a candidate, we had a pro Bitcoin candidate that was running against him in California. And I talked about her on all my socials, Erica Rhodes, and big shout out to Erica Rhodes. But guess what? Nobody voted for her. Nobody showed up at the polls. So now we have this guy in office that is not pro-crypto, not pro-NFTs, not pro-Bitcoin. He's getting his pockets lined by the banks and people are upset and they're crying about and they're complaining about it. Guess what? They had the option to vote for her. And if you couldn't vote for her because you weren't in the district or whatever that was, you could have donated to the campaign. You could have spread things out on social media. You could have advocated for this, but people chose not to. So now we're starting to see we're reaping what we sow on a local and now a global level because we have somebody in office that is not pro Bitcoin, crypto or NFTs. And we're seeing all this negative representation being pushed out to the masses. So I just wanted to add that in there.
6: I think those points are all very well made. I have a couple of other things I've been thinking about on this. First, you know, to Will's point. My parents, I believe, bought their first house in 1982. Kind of the height of this, their first interest rate on that was about 14% for a 30-year mortgage. But the thing about it that makes it really different is that the price they paid for that house was about $120,000 in California at the time, back in you know the early 80s. That house today, you know, without significant changes, is now valued by Zillow at like $1.8 to $1.9 million. That's the difference, is that you can deal with higher interest rates assuming that your costs aren't already so inflated by low interest rates. But once you have that low interest rate period that allows people to really push up prices, that's why this is going to be painful, especially in the housing market. But I really don't think it's going to last. That's kind of the thing that comes to for me is that the reason why the Fed can't do what Volcker did back in the 80s is because the government has so much more debt today than it did at that time. And so they've been able to, again, like over the last couple of years, we've seen literal trillions of dollars be printed into existence and, quote, spent for things that might be really great, might be really terrible. We don't know. But what we do know is that the government took all of that as debt on our behalf for those of us who are based in the U.S. And so with that in mind, the question is really what interest rate can the federal government afford to pay for its debt? You know, especially if the Fed is also going to stop being a buyer of that debt, which they have said that they will do as they have become a very significant part of that market. So I actually think that this is a much greater endurance challenge for the US government to, you know, just accept that they have no way out of this inflation without making serious structural changes that I don't think the political system is willing to accommodate. Like it's bad news in some ways because certainly people are hurting and that is terrible. And this is a direct cause of the sorts of manipulations and the distortions that we see in the economy. As a result of these types of moves, but it doesn't bother me that it looks like the system is failing in a way that will be hard to disguise because I think that apathy that Wendy's been talking about, you know, I think that apathy goes away at the point where it's obvious who the bad guy is. And unfortunately, the bad guy seems to be the people who are making the rules for us. Totally, totally. No, just on the political will right
2: before we swap topics here. It's difficult, right? And the Reagan administration came in in 1980 on the point of taming inflation, right? And a change of the political administration gave them the ability to do that. Biden administration sort of was halfway through this. They inherited a lot of the inflation in some sense of it, but a lot of this started picking up midway through the term. So it's difficult to say if the political will was really there at that point.
1: Breaking news, the U.S. Department of Justice has charged former Coinbase product manager Ishan Wahi and two others, his brother and an associate, on allegations of wire fraud and insider trading today. The Department of Justice called it the first ever crypto insider trading tipping scheme. So Ishan Wahi apparently started working at Coinbase starting in October 2020 as a product manager assigned to Coinbase asset listing team. The DOJ press release says that on at least 14 occasions, starting in June 2021 and continuing through April 2022, Ishan Wahi knew in advance what crypto assets Coinbase was planning to list and the timing of Coinbase's public announcements of those listings. He is accused of tipping off his brother, Nikhil Wahi, or associate, Samir Rahmani, so that they could place profitable trades. In those crypto assets in advance of Coinbase's public listings announcements. They allegedly racked up around 1.5 million dollars in realized and unrealized profits from the trades and the document says they also used a number of accounts on centralized exchanges in other names as well as anonymous Ethereum wallets to try and move and conceal the funds. So the whole thing was discovered in an incident back in April when someone tweeted that an Ethereum wallet had bought thousands of dollars worth of a token about 24 hours before the listing was published by Coinbase. The trade was done by a uh, Romani according to the document and Coinbase said it was investigating the incident quickly after the tweet. Crazy stuff. So who wants to take a stab at it first? <laughs> I Yeah, so I'll go for it.
2: <laughs> no, this is a super wild story. This is breaking news, so yeah. I was just reading it for the first time a second ago, and like, wow, what a story! So the Twitter account that's associated with this apparently it was Crypto Cobain, who know because it was Kobe. He is well known within the crypto space, pretty big guy. At this point, almost going into like influencer slash celebrity status for crypto people out there. And he's been tweeting a little bit about Coinbase in their random asset listings for a while now. And this one seems to have paid off bigly. Coinbase has been listing a lot of random assets, like random tokens that nobody quite gets why they're listing them. That's very different from their past where they were very strict about what assets they were going to list. And in this case, it seems like they got a little sloppy They had someone on the team who shouldn't be there. And that person was insider trading as far back or as just around the corner April, you know. That's not that long ago. This was happening pretty recently. Been doing it for quite a while. The story gets really complex if you go into the DOJ website and read some of the press release. Romani tried to flee the United States after Coinbase confronted him. He bought a one-way ticket to India. The FBI stopped him before he could board that flight. He sent pictures of all the interactions with Coinbase to the other two suspects trying to get them to leave, tell them to like flee, go international as well. It seems one of them is still at large and one person has been taken into custody and they took about $1.5 million in realized gains from all of this activity, which is a decent payoff. But when you're looking at 20 years, which is what the DOJ is pressing right now, not sure it's quite worth it. Jen, to you.
3: Yeah, $1.5 million between three people in return for 20 years in prison just doesn't seem to make sense to me. What I took away from this story is just how quick crypto Twitter is to identify what's going on in this industry, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I mean, we talk so much about regulatory clarity, right? And I think that we're going to start getting this clarity in the way that we're seeing this story unfold. I don't think we're going to see, you know, rules written nicely and presented to the industry and DOJ or regulators are going to be like, these are the rules, follow them. I think we're going to see people be made examples of people who are doing shady things. And I think that that's how we're going to get clarity quicker. I don't think that's necessarily the right way, but it really seems like we're seeing this time and time again. Someone at a large company does something that's not good and they're made an example of, and that's how we know, you know, we shouldn't do that again, Adam.
6: Yeah, it is actually a really interesting story. And one of the kind of the most interesting differences, as far as I am aware, is that from this compared to the OpenSea incident that we had a couple of months ago, is that it looks like Coinbase probably actually brought this to the attention of the Department of Justice, or at least took some action to pursue this. Whereas with the OpenSea thing, I didn't get the vibe from reading the DOJ's release that that was the case. I got the vibe more that OpenSea had fired the guy publicly because of the thing. And then they had reacted based on this event happening, but not necessarily at the request of the company. Whereas with Coinbase, it seems like they discovered this internally and then started to take action. And again, like if you're fleeing the country, right, like that's a bad look. It's not a great way to make sort of your case (laughs) around all of these things. So not great there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely not good. And then the other thing that jumps out at me about all of this is that when we're talking about these types of like thefts and stuff like that, look at the scale and the danger that this person put themselves in by doing this inside a centralized company versus, you know, somebody who compromises a smart contract, right? Like, literally, you can fail at compromising a smart contract and still wind up with a bounty of, you know, $10 million, giving the rest of it back. Whereas these guys, you know, chances are very good based on their behavior and the allegations made so far that they will, in fact, see substantial repercussions for this. And the dollar amounts are just pennies compared to what we typically see in, you know, a crypto compromise. So I think it's a very interesting story for a bunch of reasons. Just to look at the
2: exchange listing process for Coinbase over the last six months has been really interesting, really over the the entire bull market, right? Just random tokens being listed and makes you wonder about like the internal process mm-hmm. here. But Adam, I think you have your finger right on the pulse, correct? They caught this a little bit earlier and they're paying attention to crypto Twitter as well, which crypto Twitter seems to have this self-righteous tendency to correct everyone as much as it can. And so they were identifying that Coinbase was listing these random tokens, they saw it as an opportunity for someone inside Coinbase to potentially cause harm to the industry. And then Coinbase noted that, looked at the transaction history, and it's all there. It's all on chain, right? It's very easy to look at this. And from there, you can sort of figure out whose wallet is whose, right? It said in the press release that this was an anonymous wallet. Well, nothing's really anonymous with any sort of blockchain application. You can basically figure it out. You just need the address, IP address, make the time zones line up and things are pretty simple. Sunderli, so give it back to you for final thoughts on this one, though.
1: No, well, that was exactly what I wanted to say, just how crypto Twitter works. And, you know, there's a lot of noise, but it works out sometimes as this proves. But Jen, you had your hand up, so I'm going to pass it to you before we wrap.
3: Yeah, just to Adam's point, I am curious if I actually think we're going to see more centralized exchanges looking for bad actors internally. I think centralized exchanges, especially in the United States, want to show regulators that they are doing the right thing, that they are abiding by laws and that they are interpreting the laws that already exist in a fair way. So that should something come up that falls in that gray area that we talk about so often, regulators might be a little bit more lenient with them since they have shown that they are good law-abiding centralized exchanges. So I think, you know, if you're doing something shady and you work at a centralized exchange, probably stop.
6: Well, it's just just not in their best interest, right? (laughs) Like whether you're talking about the OpenSea situation, you're talking about the Coinbase situation, or I would be surprised if there weren't significant shenanigans of this type going on in many other exchanges because the opportunity has been there and the downside has been very limited. Mm -hmm. But this doesn't benefit a company like Coinbase doesn't benefit the companies that these people work for. So again, like there's a strong incentive for them to stamp out this behavior in as public a way as possible to try and prevent anybody else from doing it.
1: Three Arrows Capital News. After five weeks in hiding, Three Arrows Capital founders Suju and Kyle Davis have finally spoken out. In an extensive interview with Bloomberg, the duo talked about how and why the big crypto hedge fund imploded earlier this year. A quick quote from the article, at times contrite and at times defensive, Davies and Shu, speaking from an undisclosed location, described a systemic failure of risk management in which easy-flowing credit worsened the impact of wrong-way bets. So the former Credit Suisse traders pointed to trades involving Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and Terra's Luna and UST tokens as contributing majorly to the blow-up. They also called the collapse regrettable and said they believed in everything they set out to do to the fullest. They also said that they had to go into hiding because of death threats from what they called some crazy people in crypto. And the plan is to end up in Dubai and continue the 3AC liquidation process. There's quite a bit more in here, but first of all, nice to hear from them. I'm sure a lot of people, no doubt, were waiting very impatiently. Kind of sounds like they're trying to throw the blame around here a little bit. But for me, the standout was this statement from Zhu that sort of canceled out everything they said about, you know, it being the fault of so many other things. Zhu said that if we were more on our game, we would have seen that the credit market itself can be a cycle. And that, you know, we may not be able to access additional credit at the time that we need it, if kind of, you know, it hits the fan. This is like what we heard from the Fed Reserve Chair Jerome Powell recently when he said, now we know better how little we understand inflation. I'm so glad that this was like a learning experience for you guys, but so (laughs) much money was involved and so many people you will never know in person suffered. It is literally your job to know how these things work. How do you start a fund if you don't know how credit works? Anyway, I'm going to pass it to Jen before I spontaneously combust. Jen,
3: please. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I'm just going to echo everything that you said. Like, it is nice to hear from them, but is this what we wanted to hear? Basically, they're saying, you know, this was an experiment and they're really blaming what happened with Terra Luna and Grayscale. Like they're shifting all of the blame and completely ignoring this 1000 page report. Everyone has been going through with a fine tooth comb that point directly to some huge missteps on their part. And so to just not acknowledge some of the things that have come out in that report, some of the narratives that have been being spoken about in the media and from a regulatory front just seems so tone deaf. I would have rather just not heard from them if this was how they were going to handle it. George?
4: Yeah, I have like three things I'm thinking about at once. First, no matter how much money you lost people, you don't deserve death threats. Like, yeah, sure, these guys were dumb, they did some dumb stuff, but they don't deserve these death threats. However, how can you not shoulder some blame? Sandali, like you said, We've known what credit cycles have been like since forever, since credit has existed, which is, has been a while, right? We've known credit existed since 1800, so you should know this, right? The other thing I'm thinking about is, you know, this type of stuff happens, but I want to point out that very few people were willing to say out loud that the Luna mechanism was unsustainable. There are even fewer who were discerning with that critique, and what I mean by that is, if you're just yelling about all the altcoins, your warning has less urgency. However, what I'm really am most shocked about is people getting caught up in this GBTC premium trade that 3 arrows got caught up in. If there's a trade that is so painfully obvious and easy to understand that it can be explained in a singular tweet, it probably isn't a serious trade and it sounds unsustainable. So they got caught up in two unsustainable trades. Not sure I feel bad for 3AC though, right? They'll be fine. They're competent enough to have had more than $1 billion assets under management. And they surely have at least a million dollars of you know Monero or Zcash tucked away. So that's more than anyone has, many people have in the world. So they'll be okay. I don't feel bad for them. They don't deserve to death threats, but you should know your credit cycles. Adam?
6: You know, I think the comment that they made about not understanding sort of the way that this stuff works. And I think your comment about us understanding the credit cycles, you know, how they've worked for hundreds of years at this point. I think that there is a counter explanation to this, which is that although that's true, Credit has worked differently for the last dozen, you know, a little bit longer than that number of years. And that's largely because the Federal Reserve first, well, actually the Bank of Japan first, but the Federal Reserve most recently and most significantly really broke the credit cycle. And so you didn't have normal behavior. And I mean, one question that I don't know the answer to, but which I'm very curious about, is how old are the founders of Three Arrows Capital? Because it's very possible that they've lived the majority of their trading lives, perhaps the vast majority or entirety of their trading lives in this type of environment. And so really what that means is that although they do definitely bear significant responsibility, the Fed also has some culpability in this too, because it has, through its actions and manipulations of credit markets, has effectively trained people to believe the wrong things about how money should work. They did it for reasons that they thought were really good. They did it in ways that they thought were the least worst ways that they could. But you look at the blowups that we see from firms like Archegos, you know, in the kind of traditional capital world, and, you know, from Three Arrows Capital, certainly in the crypto capital world. And these are all symptoms of the problem that is monetary manipulation coming from the Federal Reserve. Yeah, George, back to you.
4: That's church, Adam. I love it. I totally agree. I'm not that old. I'm almost 28 years old, and my entire career wow, has been full market.
3: a little dig to Adam there? <laughs>
4: no, that was awesome. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying I'm not that old and my entire career has been a bull market. So I don't know what normal credit markets actually act like just because I read books doesn't mean I know anything. Anyway, Sundly, your hand went up. So I want to hear what you have to say.
1: No, yeah, they're 35. And they also say in the article that there was a lot of accommodative borrowing. People were really happy when things were going up. So they let, you know, more be borrowed. These are like things that any company, you know, with good sense should approach with caution. And I think that's what we have we've seen across the board with crypto companies during this crash that they were not maybe prepared or ready to kind of confront the possibility that the market will go in a way that they did not expect. And they say that exactly in this article that they were like, we were not kind of expecting the market downturn the way it happened. Oops, you know, contingencies need to be in place. And I think going forward, maybe we have a lot of lessons to take away from this. And it's great to hear from them. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line the hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.
3: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car,